Uh, Well, this morning's short story is a story of warning. It's a cautionary example of what happens when your heart customarily chooses to say no to God. It's when we consistently say no, no, never, not at this time, that we find ourselves unable to say anything but no to God. We cannot help but reject Him. And Israel does not simply doubt God in this morning's point of trajectory here. Even that God could handle. Rather, Israel doesn't even want to believe Him anymore. They would rather be left alone or go back to Egypt. They would even rather die than listen to the word of God. So they actively disbelieve, and this is one of the most dangerous things that we can do in our relationship with God. For some of us, circumstances or trials in our life cause us to ask questions about how God could be good in an evil situation, or even cause us to ask the question, does God even exist? But for others of us, it's not our circumstances or our trials, but it's what he says. Whether he says something about our marriage, or maybe he said something we didn't like necessarily about our free time or our relationships. Do you even want to believe? Or is it just easier not to? Now, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a believer in much of anything, let alone call yourself a Christian. But I want you to ask yourself this morning, would you want to believe if all the evidence was lining up? Often enough, our problem isn't that we just don't believe in God. It's the fact that we don't want to believe in Him. We could sit here and we could debate till we're blue in the face what is the actual worst sin that one could imagine. But what we see is actually the worst sin right here in these passages in Numbers 13 and 14. Nothing can be worse for the human heart than to deliberately refuse to trust God. I mean, there's a reason, if we look at this passage as we will, that throughout Scripture, time and time again, we see that Scripture points back to the story. It's because we all need to see what disbelief is and how it works out in our own lives. How it hardens and how it destroys Here we remember not only that it requires faith to please God, but we also are called to reflect upon how disbelief has lurched its way into the crevices of our own soul. And this drama of disbelief that spans numbers 13 and 14, we're going to walk through five scenes, okay? And they each are going to have their corresponding lesson as they unpack the dangers of disbelief. Now, there are many tears in our hard hearts that that need the tender and healing touch of the Holy Spirit. So before we dig in, let's pray that God would be working and that our hearts would be willing to hear what he has to say this morning. Almighty God, we have confessed that you are creator and maker of heaven and earth. We ask that you would draw our hearts, that you would stir our imaginations, that you would guide our wills to trust and obey your very word. By your grace, may your name be glorified, may your son Jesus be magnified, and your spirit given free reign over our wandering hearts this morning. And so we do pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, 
regardless of where you're at in your reading plan, we're doing what's called this journey of open here. We're all trying to open scripture together um, at least once a day. Whether you're doing the whole story plan, or you're doing a chapter a day, but hitting kind of the main themes of scripture, or the whole Bible plan, where you're reading through the, the whole entire Bible, which is a great feat and a very enriching journey. But regardless of which journey you're choosing for this year, we're both going to be spending the week in numbers. Now, the book of Numbers portrays people on a journey. The time and travel between belief and seeing. The time and travel between promise and fulfillment. The time and travel between Mount Sinai and Canaan. If you look at the book of Numbers, literally in the Hebrew, it means in the desert. And that's where we find Israel, wandering in this barren and empty wilderness, finally on the edge of the promised land. We see God like a father on Christmas morning, excited to give his children the presents that he so longs to give. But the question is, are they ready for his promised gifts? And so God knows how to expose his people's hearts to themselves. So let's begin reading in chapter 13, verse 1, scene 1. Scene 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Moses sent them to spy out, that land, spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. And whether the people will dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities that they dwell in are, a campus, are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So think back to all we've seen in the story so far. When Israel left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea Tamara. Here, this is where we're going to follow them along. And then, when Israel left Egypt, they began to grumble because of the manna that God gave them in the wilderness of sin. Do you remember when we journeyed down there to sin right there? (laughs) Journeyed to sin, right? That's a great place to go. Received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then they moved up, and this is where we find them today, up to Kadesh Barnea. And if you look at them, they're right on the edge of the promised land. All of this green is what has been promised. By God. And they're right there. So God, he instructs Moses to pick some men. But not just any men, men who have a voice within the community. These are young leaders who are capable and able to go and scour out the land to see the fruit and do it so in such a way that they're undetected. And so after spending a good 40 days in the land, they return with their report. I mean, the the land's awesome. It has pomegranates, it's got figs, it's overflowing with good... I mean, grapes are so big that as in verse 23, they say, they cut down from there a branch with a single, single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. I mean, as a matter of fact, this is still a huge image for Israel today. If you look, here's a postage stamp. This same image that comes from Numbers 13 is still a part of the cultural milieu of those within Israel. So you can almost hear them. Way to go, God. This is a beautiful land. This is gorgeous. This is his gift. But that's not all they say. 
If you see in verse 28, they say, The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And it's true. I mean, archaeologists have excavated um, some of the the particular properties in some of these ancient Canaanite cities. Hatsor, this is an example of Hatsor, for example, um, has defense walls that were 24 feet thick. I mean, this this could be intimidating for a people who have never gone into battle. This can be intimidating for a people who have been slaves for most of their remembrance. And so, of course, you begin to hear the trepidation in their voice as they begin to tell about this land. But what we find is that they're more than afraid. They're more than afraid. They're not sure they believe the stories of promise any longer. And so come the questions, right? And we all have had moments like that. Was the parting of the Red Sea a coincidental storm? Were those, were those plagues of Egypt really that miraculous? How can we trust that God is able, yes, he may be able to manipulate nature, but can he conquer armies such as these? I mean, one of the first things we learn in this story about disbelief is that disbelief is always possible. It's always possible. It doesn't matter what you've seen, what you think you know, what you thought you believed. Disbelief is always waiting in the shadows just around the corner, lurking. I mean, when we're afraid of man, when we're afraid of rejection, when we're afraid of failure, I mean, fill in the blank. It's when these fears and their own promises begin to vie for the major guiding point for our decisions, then God's promises and His ways that disbelief is lurking. When we don't like what God has to say about desires or our passions or our relationships, and we say to ourselves, what do you mean I shouldn't? How can you say I can't? Then disbelief is lurking. Maybe you've never believed in God. Maybe, you know, you're still unsure on where you stand, and we often ask God, you know, for these, these massive displays of direction, for these signs of his existence, but they don't ensure belief, do they? I mean, we could easily say, God, if you would only, God, if you would just, then I would, then I could finally, but how are we sure that even those would work? God's always working miraculously in our lives, whether we can see it or not. The question is, do you believe? And even in moments of great miraculous, I mean, the story of Israel in and of itself, and yet disbelief is still possible. Well, let's look at what happens in scene two. What will they do? I mean, this is the big question. Are they right at the cusp here? And in verse 30 through 33, we receive our answer. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of a great height. And there was what we saw, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. You see, we find our recruits not united along the way. 
All the spies went in and they saw the exact same things as the others. And they knew they were going up against some serious difficulties. They were all united, but pretty much one voice. There were a few others, but Caleb's the one who stands out here at this point in the story. When he looks at all the difficulties that surround him, he doesn't see what he can't do, but he sees what God can do. His enthusiasm, it comes through in his short speech. I mean, he just talks for a brief second. He says, you know, we got this. Let's stop waiting around. God's good land is good. God is good. He's given it right in front of us. So let's just get going. I mean, it's a, it's a real quick snippet compared to the long, bad report that we see following. They were never supposed to go into the land to determine whether it was good or whether it was bad. They were just supposed to go in and give a report of how good the land is to get excited about what God had given them already. Instead, the other spies, they see it through their own lens of inexperience and their military size, and they begin to question God's strength. They give a bad report, and even in their imaginations, right, they run wild with this mythology of fear. I mean, look at this language. Even if the land doesn't eat us itself, I mean, they use this language of the land actually consuming them. Then the Nephilim, these mythical giants of old, they dwell there. And these giants, that, that we, 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 we were just seen as bugs before them. They're going to squash us if we go in there. Do you really want that? I mean, if somebody painted a picture like that and you're hearing this story, I mean, that's very imaginative. And you begin to have all, your imagination does go wild with the possibilities of failure and utter annihilation. I mean, talk about a great anticlimax. I mean, they've been on this journey, Israel has, for the past 17 months. And it's all been leading up to this one moment. And they choose to stop short. It's like when Frodo in Lord of the Rings, you know, he finally makes it up to Mordor and he's got the ring and he has the chance to drop it in Mordor. This is the only hope for the Dark Lord to rise again. And he turns around. And he turns around. I know it's kind of nerdy, but I figured I'd bring in a Lord of the Rings reference, right? <laughs> Most of us have seen it, whether we'd like to admit it or not. Um, but yes, this is a, it's a very similar situation. A very, an intense moment of anticlimax. And you see disbelief right here. Disbelief, it's something that we don't often like to admit, but disbelief is a choice. It's a choice. It's not the lack of facts here that disbelief reigns, but it's a lack of faith. For example, Caleb does not contradict one bit the content of what the spies have seen, but he does contradict the conclusions, what is possible. You see, disbelief is different from doubt, too. We need to be able to distinguish between the two. Alistair McGrath, in his book, Doubting, makes some helpful distinctions between doubt and disbelief. He argues... Doubt isn't skepticism, which is the decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. Nor, he says, is doubt unbelief, which is the decision not to have faith in God. Unbelief is an act of the will rather than a difficulty in understanding. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive in our journeys. But faith and disbelief are. Doubt is asking questions about uncertainties through the lens of faith where disbelief is a settled decision of the will to decide no matter what may come, you will deny God, and you will deny His ways. There's a key distinction there, and we don't want to mess those two together. Here in the story, disbelief, yeah, it's prompted by fear. They see things that are insurmountable to them. 
But it can come from many different places. It can come from bitterness. It can come from pain. It can come from loss. You name it. Anything that will convince you that God is no longer trustworthy. This can also lead you down the path of disbelief. And then before you know it, your whole world revolves around proving that you're right. Proving you know better. And so in your pain, you begin to lash out with questions. What does God really know about my marriage? What does God really know about my kids? What does he really know about my money? What does he really know about my free time, about my situation in life, about my work? You see, on our journey of redemption, there are moments of great struggle where our faith hangs in the balance. And we daily have to choose to either believe or disbelieve. But we must come to terms that we have a choice to make. And as we enter scene three, the rest of Israel steps into center stage. If you look at verses, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 14, we see the rest of what Israel's choice is to make. They're to choose to believe the bad report. And we see the nasty word grumble, which we saw a few weeks ago, popping back up here. Their grumbling takes shape in this painting of an idealistic picture where everything would be better without God. We'd be better without him. We'd be better off if we were dead already, whether it be in the wilderness or whether it be back in Egypt. As a matter of fact, we'd be better off with another leader, too. We'd be better off if we were slaves, even in Egypt. Any person, any place, is better than where we are now. And I mean, think about how ridiculous that sounds. When they start saying that it's going to be better for them as slaves back in Egypt. But just because they've stopped believing in God at this point doesn't mean they've stopped believing in anything. I mean, that's literally impossible. We're designed to trust. It's just it's an innate desire within us and our innate design. And when God is removed from his rightful place, we replace him with something else as the hero. If Yahweh can't get, out of, get us out of this mess, maybe I can do it. Or maybe Egypt can do it for us. And this is the third thing we learn about disbelief. Disbelief in one thing equals belief in something else. There is no one within this room who does not believe in something. No one is excluded. Even an atheist who proclaims to say they do not believe in God believes in the belief that there is no God. There is still a dividing line, and they've placed their faith in their reason as the ultimate source of reality. The person on the other end, who's the pluralist, has also chosen to believe something. They say they believe in everything, but they've also chosen to disbelieve in others. Their inclusive path that always lead to God excludes exclusive paths that lead to God. It is a fine line of distinction, but it's very true. To say that you believe that always lead to the same point in the end excludes those that say that only one way is viable. There's a point of contradiction if they truly believe that that still fits within their viewpoint. So belief in one thing equals belief in something else. And maybe for you it isn't as extreme as this. You know? We're not gonna, maybe you're not an atheist or a pluralist. Um, and if you are, there are valid questions that we wrestle through. But maybe that's not your own journey. And you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, is it your doctors you trust? Is it your bank account that's your ultimate place of security and reliance and trust? Everyone's a believer. The question we have to ask is, what are you a believer in? And scene four in this story that spans chapters 13 and 14, 
shows us how crucial our answer is to this question. The unrest in the camp of Israel begins to escalate, going from 0 to 60 in verse 5 of chapter 14. Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces before the congregation. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, they rip their clothes apart and begin to scream out to the people one final plea. The land is outrageously good. God is outrageously good. Don't turn your back on him now. Don't let your fear of man rule you. You see this language of fear that consistently pops up in the text. And then all of Israel in their rage, they begin to grab stones in order to murder Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. But God had remained silent long enough, right? (laughs) He shows that despite popular opinion, he will redeem and he will secure his own. And he actually guards and stops Israel in their tracks. I mean, could you imagine that moment? You're holding the stone, ready to to smack Moses upside the head. And then God shows up. I mean, (laughs) there's a big uh uh-oh moment that's probably going over in your mind. Imagine God in all of his glory, the pillar of fire uh, by night, the cloud of smoke by day shows up to protect his own. And you're on the the opposing side. (laughs) Well, God invites Moses into this meeting. And he laments. He just weeps over his people. I mean, we can, we can see the heart of God here over the brokenness of humanity so clearly. In verse 12, listen as you think of even the Psalms, this language of how long, how long. And what does God say? He says, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? God summarizes Israel's actions toward him with one phrase. They despise me. They despise me. And this word despise, it's not just, you know, hey, you know, you, you hit me on the shoulder, I'm not going to talk to you today. This is an internal, deep down within your gut, hate and revulsion. And God's right. Just moments ago, right? They were crying, we don't want Moses, we don't want the promised land, we don't have anything, God, you have to offer us. We don't want you. We'd rather die in the wilderness with any leader in any country or in any path that is better than being with you. And it's here that we see the fourth truth about disbelief. Disbelief ultimately chooses death over life. It's very severe. And God is so honoring of us. This is who he is in his nature that he actually gives us what we ask for. He's so honoring of our decision that he gives us what we ask for. And in verse 12... God goes on to say that he will be against his people because they have been against him and they will not get what they do not want to receive. They will not receive the promised land, at least this generation. You see, if God's the last thing you want, then God's the last thing you're going to get. C.S. Lewis, he has a famous quote that I think fits really well from his book, The Great Divorce. And he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Disbelief is a choice. And when it's chosen, death and destruction are its companions. The other thing about our choices, too, is that the repercussions never just land on the person who's made them, right? 
They have a very high communal element to them. They always seem to smack up against those who are closest to us. Have you ever heard of the crab mentality? I'm sure if you've been in any sort of business class or social uh, sociology class, you might be familiar. Well, the crab mentality is if you ever walk through an open market, you'll notice a bucket of crabs, and they never put a lid on the bucket of crabs. And the question is why? I mean, aren't they going to get out of the bucket? No, because they incessantly pull each other back in the bucket. Whenever one is about to crawl out, the crabs reach out, and they're incessant to be the king of the hill to try to escape. And if they would only work together, they could so easily escape the bucket, even if they just let each other alone. Many times they're so full that they could easily crawl out. But they don't, because they are so always pulling each other in and out, or back into the bucket. And so we see that it began with ten disbelieving spies. Ten disbelieving leaders and their bad report, and the entire community is sucked down into the bucket. We, you know, it's not, I'm not against American culture. I love American culture. I'm an American, you know, I'm married an American. Um, But many times in our American culture, we can tend to be hyper-individualistic, and we just think that our decisions, oh, I can make whatever choice I want to make because it just affects me. This isn't going to hurt anybody else. But that is one of the biggest lies of our culture biggest lies. The decisions you make do impact those who are around you. It impacts your family, your friends, and even your community, your broader community. The decisions you make impact those around you. And so the entire community, we see this played out in this story. The entire community, if you were to read the rest of uh, Numbers 14, experiences God's punishment. Because of Israel's disbelief, they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were in the land. And it'll be long enough for every adult that has disbelieved to die in the wilderness. But they're not the only ones who pay for this, are they? They're children. Their children are given the promise of the promised land, but they still have to wait now. There is a delay that must come because of the decisions of those around them. And so we see that their sons and daughters... They'll wander in the wilderness with their parents until they die. They have not only denied God's promises for themselves, but they've denied it for those around them. I mean, this is heartbreaking. But this is what disbelief does. It's not just about you. It's about those around you as well. Those who care for you. And disbelief chooses death over life. Now, we might be struck with the harshness of God's punishment in this, And to be honest with you, when I first read it, I was. But anymore, I'm not. What surprises me anymore is God's lenience. As we pointed to earlier, he says in verse 12 that he's going to destroy the whole lot of them and start over with Moses. I mean, he's pretty frustrated at this point, if we can speak respectfully of God in that manner. Um, And that's what we deserve from our belief. our, our, Our disbelief, rather. He doesn't choose to just start over with Moses, but why? Why not destroy the entire human race who lives in a state of disbelief so much of the time? Because disbelief doesn't have to have the last word. You see, disbelief is only defeated by love. Disbelief is only defeated by love. Before God breathes his wrath upon his people who have denied him, Moses speaks to God on their behalf. You know, he says, God, if you do this, you're going to be the laughing stock of the nations. And just remember, you promised. And he reminds Yahweh 
the Lord who he is in verse 18 of chapter 14. He says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses reminds God of his character, of his steadfast love. And at first, when I read this, this is another point. I mean, this story is difficult to wrestle through. I was perplexed at how God was interacting with Moses. I mean, is, is, does Moses actually talk God out of judgment? Is he able to change God's mind? And then I realized, no. There's something important about our God we have to see in here. Our God is a person. And he act, interacts with persons as a person. His mind has never changed. He's testing and he's working and growing his people. But you can see the moment when he calls Moses to stand up for his own character. When he tells, you know, he he acts in such a way that Moses must stand and say, remember who you are. And he goes, you know who I am. These people don't know who I am. But you know who I am. And so I will act in who I am. And really, that's not a whole lot different than when we pray today. Moses, in one essence, is praying that God would interact and hear the requests of his people. It's mysterious. It's magnificent. A God who never changes his mind, who's all-knowing, but still uses to work through, or chooses to work through our prayers is mind-blowing. But we believe he does, and we see it even now. Well, Moses says, God, I know who you are, but who you are is loving and forgiving, faithful to your promise. And God says, okay. He punishes the guilty, but he preserves his promise, right? Disbelief is only defeated by love. And so does that make Moses the hero? Is Moses the guy we want to try to be like, try to emulate? Of course not. Moses, he's simply the messenger. He's the interceder. But even he is not able to go into the promised land, as we read later, because of his own disobedience. We all know we need someone who's better than Moses. We need a hero who's greater than the Moses that we read here. And so we need someone, yes, to intercede on our behalf. One who will stand before God in our defense. One who is despised like Moses, but not only threatened with death, but goes to the most gruesome forms of death, to the cross. And this hero would not simply speak of God's love, but he would be love incarnate. And he wouldn't just plead for our forgiveness, he would die for it. While we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies of God, while we were wallowing or wallowing in our own disbelief, Jesus proves his love for us. And he gave his life for us. If we look to the Gospel of John, you know, a verse that's just so familiar to many of us, maybe the first verse you memorized when you were in elementary, if you were raised in a church, was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we may know this verse well, but we have to keep reading. We have to keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Do you believe? Better yet, do you want to believe? 
The only cure for our disbelieving hearts is to be so gripped, so enraptured in the character of our loving God that our hearts melt before Him. So ask yourself, and if you have a pen, I would actually encourage you to write this down and think through this because the answers don't necessarily jump out at us when we're thinking about this, but ask where are you most susceptible to disbelief? Is it God's commands? Is it with your worries? your anxieties, in your area of distractions? Where are you most susceptible? And where do we need to repent before a holy God? Well, as we continue to struggle with disbelief, and I guarantee every one of us in here will, daily ask God to help you believe. Ask Him to help you believe. And run to the one who will never let you go, because it's in His arms that we truly learn what belief looks like. It's in that moment that we can sing with greater conviction, as we will during the Lord's Supper, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Thee. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Now, normally in this time, I would spend a moment just praying over us. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to actually confess together which is in your welcome folder. So if you have that in hand, I'd encourage you to grab it. Like when we proclaimed the Apostles' Creed, early we proclaimed before God and before one another the truth. And the truth is that we too often do not believe God. And we need His forgiveness. So we'll confess together and then we'll turn to a time of the Lord's Supper as we reflect on what Christ has done on our behalf because of our disbelief. Wondrous God, who places a shield behind us, goes into battle before us, and dwells among us, how often have we tried to hide from your presence? How seldom have we looked for your all-powerful hand? Lord, have mercy upon us. Wondrous God, who took upon yourself flesh of our flesh in Jesus, and being found in human form, In the ultimate disclosure of yourself in the face of Jesus Christ, how often we have forgotten you. How seldom have we really loved and followed you. Christ, have mercy upon us. Wondrous God, who pours out freely the Holy Spirit, how often have we ignored your leading. How seldom have we asked for your help or accepted your gifts. Lord, have mercy upon us. We believe. Help us in our disbelief. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.